What happened was true. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Do it. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over two years now. So there yeah. is 50-plus. Uh, we're nearing, I think, 60 almost bonus episodes for anyone. So if anyone hasn't <laughs> made the crazy. jump yet, there are a lot of episodes waiting for you over on patreon.com slash thesoids podcast. Uh, speaking of which, we had an absurd amount of people make the jump this week. So yeah. Thank you. Uh, as usual, I get to take a little bit more time with the names, but this week uh, I really do have to rip the room, so I apologize. But uh, people who signed up this week are Seamus Horan, Michael Halverson, uh, Muya, uh, Will Carroll, Luke Pajowski, Zach Lund, Michael uh, Dorer, Jake Takes, <laughs> Jack. Uh, Sinbos, uh, Evan Rowe, uh, Aaron Kaufman, we're still going, Hardy awesome. Zabitzer, uh, Angus Shaw, Jacob Block, Paul Ma, and Maxwell Dean. Sweet. Uh, thanks so much to every single one of you for signing up this month. Yes, thank um, you. Hope you guys in your self-isolation are enjoying all of your uh extra episodes there and we appreciate the support a lot that's uh the one plug for the week the other plug for the week always is apple Podcasts. if you guys are listening on apple Podcasts, and i hear the stats i know you guys are out there uh you guys should scroll to the very very bottom while you're listening to this right now and give us a good old rating and review down there it helps us find new listeners and climb the ranks over there so we appreciate yes, that please. as well all right but that being said those are your plugs for the week uh, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and joining me as always is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, guys. As you can probably hear, we are still in the quarantine zone. Yes, we here are. Here at the Sleezoids Podcast, we are quarantining even from each other. So again, the show might sound a tiny bit different, the rhythm might be a tiny bit off, and it is because Jamie and I are uh, recording remotely here um but that being said uh this is our i think our third episode recording remote remotely so yeah. some of you should be familiar with it by now uh, but two weeks ago it. would have been the last time you guys heard from us where uh you know we were feeling a little bit grim about the situation so <laughs> we we went we went a little apocalyptic and we had a uh, friend of the show esther rosenfield on for the second time to talk about uh john carpenter's prince of darkness from 1987 one of his uh, 
most surreal, almost bordering on Italian surreal horror yeah. uh, for John Carpenter. Um, definitely a very scary movie. We had a lot of fun talking about, and uh, Esther paired it with uh, in a kind of interesting double feature about the idea of VHS-based sort of tangible video horror. We talked the Blair Witch Project to kind of uh, coincide with the VHS sequen- dream sequences that sort of take place in Prince of Darkness. Yeah, and I especially liked uh, the Blair Witch the second time through. It really holds up well. Yeah, yeah. It was it was really fun talking about both those films with Esther. So if you haven't heard that, that was uh, two weeks ago. Any podcast listener of choice that episode was available on. And then last week, last week, we... Uh, we talked a little bit uh, infectious disease pandemic horror, which, which, which you know, which might have seemed seemed a little bit tasteless now that things have gotten a little bit more serious. But we planned that episode like five or six weeks ago. We promise. Uh, yeah, before we quarantined, uh, and so it was a weird experience having to record uh, an episode on David Cronenberg's Shivers from 1975, where uh, an entire apartment complex is overtaken by an uh infectious venereal disease that is also a blood parasite orgies uh, everywhere yeah and and also we we had the the tough stance that jamie and i had to make of we recommend sleazoids officially recommends no orgies during this time yes yes um also our number one we tip t- <laughs> we paired that with rabid 1977 so we talked uh, early david cronenberg some 70s canadian infectious disease body horror stuff so if you want that episode because you're a weirdo uh, like us <laughs> you want to scare yourself even more slash sleazoids podcast is where you'll find that episode uh but moving on here we uh for this week have brought on another special guest to talk about another big heavy hitter film that we haven't done because we didn't do prince of darkness or blair witch project uh obviously until last week and i had been meaning to do both of them for a while but i was kind of saving them i knew someone would want to bring them on someday and same goes for the central film brought on this week um but we have special guest uh twitter uh user minoski article also known as casey casey how are you doing uh, well, I'm gonna have to correct you. It's unfortunately it's Manovsky article. Oh, uh, Manovsky article. Yes, yes. It's a it's a it's a bad Gundam pun. Uh, oh, okay. okay. See, I I haven't I haven't watched enough Gundam. That's okay. But yeah, Twitter user Manovsky article, uh, aka Casey, uh, and I am doing really well given circumstances. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good, good to hear. hear. <laughs> Uh, all right, Casey, the way that the way that the show goes is we have the guests bring on uh, the two films for the week. So which two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together? OK, so I looked at what your show usually is, and it's a double feature programmed by a guest, as you said. And uh, I was I kept racking my brain about what to bring on. And I was going through the list of movies that you had never hit. And I was astonished to see that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was on the list of, you know, not duns, but, uh, you know, my, yeah. that's, that's, that's to my benefit. But I made the decision to do a pairing based on a very loose association with food. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, was so I chose, I, yeah, I, well, there's, a, there's some other justifications coming up too. Uh, so I chose, I chose uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Ramen Western Tampopo. Uh, <laughs> And I chose them because, A, they're both films that are really meticulous about meal prep. Uh, B, 
They are both films about life-changing encounters with strangers that wander into your house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and C, they are now both things I miss in quarantine, being restaurants and road trips. So yeah. <laughs> those, it are, those are it good works. reasons. So we're going to be talking about Toby Hooper's Texas uh, Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. And uh, you might need to correct me on the pronunciation here, but uh, Juzo. Juzo uh, Itami. Itami, yes. Uh, uh, Tampopo from... 1985 and yeah my my guess as to the pairing had to do with uh working class food production yes absolutely <laughs> and maybe also uh really well, gross well, one sound a bit design. more nihilistic than the other yeah yeah maybe also really gross sound design what with the slurping of noodles constantly <laughs> and then the slurping <laughs> of body parts in the other one you know yeah yeah i mean <laughs> well, there's well, a- <laughs> slurping just lets people know you enjoy the meal exactly exactly yeah, there there is definitely a a strange sense of uh, pleasure taken in food and food production happening in both of these films. Yes, uh, it's just the actual content of that food is uh, is slightly different. But <laughs> yeah. as but as uh, Franklin says in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you you would like it if you didn't know what was in it. <laughs> well, exactly. and they both have scenes that might potentially upset you regarding how the sausage is made. That's true. That is true. Yes. All right. Well, that's as good as any introduction as we're going to get, so I think we're going to jump into it right now. We are going to start with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Chain and saw being uh, uh, two words. Thank you very much. Stop! Stop! This is the movie that is just as real. Just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. All right, so we are talking the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the 1974 American horror slasher film directed by uh, Toby Hooper. Uh, maybe you heard of this. Perhaps you heard of this one. <laughs> uh, it, it, it stars uh, a bunch of relatively unknown actors at the time, but uh, in the lead role, it has Marilyn Burns, who would go on to be in... Um, some other taken Texas Chainsaw movies, as well as Toby Hooper's follow-up film, Eaten Alive. Um, yeah. mo- most of the others would go on to not honestly be in, in, in too much uh, after this one. Well, as um, I discovered yesterday, though, Ed Neal, the hitchhiker, had a very robust career in the early 2000s and late 90s doing anime dub voice work in Texas. Really? Amazing. That's yeah, awesome. I, I, I also remember, I think he's in Oliver Stone's JFK but I, yes. I can't I can't remember what what he is in that. <laughs> um, but yeah, he played Dr. Robotnik in the uh, anime Sonic movie. So. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's killer. I mean, he does have a very uh, animated performance. So I, I could <laughs> definitely see him doing like cartoon uh, voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, where to begin with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I guess we could begin with um, that opening shot is is setting the tone pretty well. I'd say. 
Yeah, well, and, and I would say that the thing to note about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I mean, that, you know, it is that it is an incredibly cheaply made film. It was shot on, I think they said it was something around $100,000, maybe wow. even less than that, actually, and the rest was done, uh, spent in editing. So uh, they, they kind of shot this uh, very, very independently and with the idea in mind of getting a pg rating what <laughs> which they kind of what? fucked up on i would say um, so pretty pretty badly <laughs> uh we'll we'll get more into that a little bit a, a little bit later um but the the basic idea for this for this film for the one person who listens to this show that maybe hasn't seen it uh <laughs> is loosely it is sort of like the godfather of what would become the slasher formula of the idea of a bunch of teens going on a little road trip, maybe hanging out and trying to get laid in an abandoned house, and they get picked off one by one by a sort of uh, mysterious killer wearing a mask. Um, And the thing about describing this film that way, though, is that is not actually what the experience of watching the film is like. No, Um, not at all. The experience of watching this film is actually a lot more sort of enigmatic and almost abstract in in, in certain ways. And it's in in due partly because Toby Hooper shooting on like this really textured, uh, like dirty 16 millimeter film. photography that has like this really fine grain and low speed to it so it's very low light but he shot in like these beautiful texas backwoods low locations uh, obviously toby hooper being from texas he kind of intended this as a bit of a uh love letter to his own state as well as you know one of the scariest movies of all time yeah a very um, uh, very odd love letter but but I love it all the but same. it, it it, it really comes uh, near the tail end of a trend of American horror that really subverted kind of like what American horror was and the way that um, American movies kind of looked at their own society. Um, a lot of people, or a lot of horror theorists anyway, sort of uh, break off the two different movements into pre-Vietnam American horror and post-Vietnam American horror, obviously starting with things like Night of the Living Dead um, by George Romero and Wes Craven's Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. And um, basically, there were a whole series of events in the late 60s, including Vietnam, including civil rights riots, including political assassinations um, and all kinds of atrocities that had a lot of independent filmmakers um looking at the cultural and political landscape of the time and being like, America is a lot sicker and more atrocious of a place than we've ever known. And Hooper has basically said that the movement of those filmmakers and those ideas was a huge part of what inspired Texas Chainsaw as well. As, the idea anyway, that the, the monster itself being coming from inside the house, being part of American culture itself was something that was sort of unique to the late sixties, early seventies. Um, and also he said that he was inspired too about the idea of being um, lied to about his government, about things that were going on around the world, uh, including things like Watergate and massacres and atrocities in Vietnam, which is where he got the idea for the film you are about to see is based on a very true story. Uh-huh. Um, and and also um, what he described as a lack of sentimentality and brutality of things like saying watching the, the local news and seeing graphic coverage of like brains being spilled out and things like that. Which is so why he, was he like, opens his film with just like two decaying bodies pretty much fused together or whatever. 
yeah, the slimiest I mean, bodies. Oh too. yeah, they're the most disgusting. Oh, like, and 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 the and the lighting too, because he just sets in that kind of Texas heat right away. So it's mm-hmm. all just orange and red and and just oozing with body fluids. And oh my god, it's it's yeah. Nuts. There's these strange like scratching, high pitched like scratching sounds, and then the camera flashes, which reveal what the uh, the radio host is calling grisly works of art. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is a great way to describe the film that you're about to watch as well. Um, and also like that yeah, leading what, into the I think it leads into the, the credits, like the opening credits and the opening credits are nothing more than just like this distorted red imagery. And it's just so grisly and gross the entire time. Yeah, it's a really dread-inducing mood and a tone to it that I think is still, like, modern. Like, I one oh, thing yeah. I always catch every time I watch this film, I've probably seen this film, like, seven or eight times now. But every time I watch this film, I'm always taken by how, like, this is, like, a, a film that, like, doesn't feel dated in any way. It still oh. scares the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. Um in the, in the sound design in in some in in the look this one um, this and, movie also and especially has, in some of the detail this movie also has one of the only pop-up scares that's ever really worked on me and worked on me again this time which is uh that that scene where they're going through the woods with Franklin uh it's Kate and Franklin I believe and uh and Leatherface just comes out of nowhere from the darkness and just starts to saw on franklin oh and, no it's 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 and, it's, uh, it, it's sally it's sally it's, it's sally. marilyn burns yeah. character. oh sally sorry um and uh and he starts to saw on franklin and the pop-up and the and and the close-up on his mask and everything is fucking terrifying <laughs> it's it's it got my whole family when we were watching it <laughs> oh you watched it with the whole family yeah the whole family wholesome wholesome Everyone, time yeah. everyone sat around family. and was like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, yeah exactly it's like one of my favorite lines in Texas Chainsaw 2. Yeah, uh, Grandma is in Chainsaw Heaven. Chainsaw Heaven, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and to that note, too, I'd like to point out one of my favorite aspects of this movie is how much of it takes place while the sun is up. Like, how yeah. much of this horror takes place under a clear blue sky. And I think that makes yes. it infinitely more unsettling than if it was all set during nighttime. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I th- one of the uh, most uh, intriguing shots to me is, like, just watching the, I think it's, uh, it's the, I can't remember his name. It's the first boyfriend that goes in and sees Leatherface for the first time. And this is when yeah. we're introduced to him as well. And all he's shown as is just this huge presence. You know, he just, he, he screams, he hits the guy with, on the head with the hammer. And then we even have like him seize out and stuff, which just adds this really kind of gross effect. Yeah. That nerve twitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. It's just so like. Ugh, it just it just creeps you out, and uh, and yeah. then the raw power of him just bringing the body into his lair and then slamming that huge metal door. It's there's just something about it that just brings such a a, a powerful presence, and it it scares the hell out of you. Well, and 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 two, it does a really good job of setting up that just like a blank a a blank composition of a hallway with an open door at the end. Oh yeah, being like the scariest thing in the goddamn world <laughs> for real. Um, because <laughs> at any moment, you know that Leatherface is just going to grab you, pull you in, slam that door, and all of a sudden it was there. You don't know what the fuck happened. You're gone. It's yeah. gone. Yeah. Uh, I no. I I think that the the sequence from Kirk walking up to the house, like we had just discussed, with this with the slamming door, with just that visceral appearance, and then Pam following after, and that tracking shot where she's walking up to the house, and they're like yeah. 
and, it, and it's like it's it's a little bit low and of course you can see her you know her backless dress and her short <laughs> shorts but it's also like it's also aimed up at the blue sky which is barely cloudy and it's just that that ominous walk toward the home and yeah. uh that wonderful uh shot where the camera goes under the swing set which apparently spielberg was so impressed by that he later asked the crew how they did it and they said, oh, we literally just had four guys off camera lifting the swing set above the camera. So, like, <laughs> oh, that's genius. That's like, genius. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that sequence from Kirk to the point where Pam walks in and then run, tries to run back out and gets pulled back into the house oh, by yeah. Leatherface. That's one of I my think favorite that, horror shots of all time, I think. Y- yes, that, that, that whole sequence, unbroken, is in my mind maybe the best horror sequence of all time. Yeah, I think yeah, there's, she, there's something to like, because I'm used to, you know, the another prolific serial killer on screen, obviously, is Michael Myers. And the, the difference between these two is like the calmness of Michael Myers and then the absolute chaotic nature and spastic craziness of, of Leatherface. And so when you see him run after her... And, and he's such a big man, too, right? You're used to the, mm-hmm. the walking serial killer, the one that he'll get to you, but if he doesn't, then whatever. But Leatherface is like, I am fucking, I'm going. I'm grabbing you. I'm, I'm using all of my force. I'm using, you know, it, it's just there's something very frightening about that. Well, and, and the way that he physically performs the character, too, as, yeah. like, he he has, like, this clumsiness of, like, yes. of, like a child or something. Um, sure. uh, but again, with the, the brute strength of like, like just obviously a, a, a total monster. So it's, it's a really scary combination of like someone who's kind of like messily violent. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah so doesn't have a lot when, of when control. He, yeah. So when he grabs her and pulls her in while she's shrieking and then takes her down the stairs, puts her on the meat hook while Whew. she's screaming and then starts chainsawing her boyfriend right in front of her. Yeah. And then a close up of him like licking his lips behind his like skin mask. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, Leatherface is a butcher, but also he is the most alive of all the slashers. You know, he is pure meat and muscle. Yeah. Yeah. He's absolutely. Yeah. And and also there's a little bit of sympathy for him, oddly enough, uh, because there's the scene after like when when the next person walks in after. After Pam and Kirk have been killed, like you see this like look of panic as Leatherface is like running around his house because he doesn't have an he doesn't have his brother there. He doesn't have uh, the the cook there. No one's there to tell him how to handle this. So yeah. from Leatherface's perspective, this is a home invasion movie. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's hilarious that you say that because when we were watching it with my my family, they, they were just laughing that we were, we were all just laughing about how it's like this is a big day for him. Like he's just yeah. been, he's just been chilling in this house all by himself, and then all of a sudden, like three people show up, and he's just killing and having a time. Like this was a huge day for Leatherface. So yeah. Well, and and also after he brings the third one down, after he discovers uh, the girl who he's put into the freezer, and he kills that guy, uh, he goes back upstairs, and he seems like he's like stressed out, like he's like covering yeah. his ears in like the corner of the room, like he's like hearing voices or hearing sounds or something. 
Um, and then also when it's later revealed and it gets into sort of like a thing that Hooper really, really loved to do in his stories, I guess, based on his own upbringing, um, he really loved exploring like sort of abusive family dynamics in the South. That was kind of mm-hmm. just like a big thing that you'll see across all of his movies. Like we're going to talk about some other Toby Hooper movies soon too. And uh, I was surprised to find it even in things like the fun house yeah. and in things like, Oh yeah. Alive. He, he, he really loves this idea of, strange family dynamics and how a family unit sort of like copes, you know, in with things like, for example, in Texas Chainsaw, there's details um, hinted about the idea of sort of like outmoded workers about uh, every member of the family used to work at the slaughterhouse sledgehammering uh, the shit out of cows uh, until they brought in the bolt gun and anyone can do it. It wasn't really a skill anymore. And the gun's Um, no good. The guns yeah, the good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's really interesting how he sort of shows you a sense of madness that derives from a sort of sympathetic displacement, like from something that you would understand that you would be like, yeah, losing your job kind of sucks, man. And, you know, not not having any way to transfer your skills into another line of work also probably sucks. And then you see just the pure horror of what they have uh, sort of transmuted those yeah. uh, skills into. With. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When they, when um, they talk about, when they talk about what a great killer grandpa used to be, uh, that he's, <laughs> that's one of the freakiest scenes, <laughs> but oh, I, yeah. I, I love, I love the cooks build up to this where he talks about how, you know, he was the most efficient killer. He doesn't, it's not about killing people. I mean, he doesn't refer to that. He's, kill- he's referring to killing cows, and he's like, he could do 60 in five minutes, and the only thing that stopped him was they couldn't automate getting the cows away from him enough in time, or he could have gone <laughs> even faster. <laughs> yeah, well, and and, and also uh, when Grandpa is, like, given the hammer and being like, go back to your prom, Grandpa, like, give her a swing, but he doesn't have, like, the bodily strength to really, like, do it cleanly anymore. It's so much worse to me, this idea that they wouldn't cleanly kill her, that they would let him messily and weakly try to oh, kill it's her. It's the worst <laughs> so part, worse. because it turns into, like, yeah, it almost turns into, like, a torture thing instead of just a, a killing scene, because you know that every, and the sound design is unreal, because they really give weight to that hammer, so every time he just kind of nicks her head and then hits the metal pan that's behind Behind, uh, that's below her there's just like such a cringe moment where you're like oh god just you, like you don't want to say killer but you also don't want her to get hit in the head with a hammer 10 times really mildly you know so well, it's just like to, to, to bring in a line from uh, the movie we're going to talk about next uh, they talk about killing animals you have to kill them very quickly or the blood will congeal like you know right. it's yeah so this isn't even about the enjoyment of the meat they're going to have this is just the sadistic pleasure of killing for its right. own sake Right. And also, like, just speaking on the grandpa, uh, Toby Hooper, this this fucked up idea where she meets the grandfather in the attic at first and you think he's dead because he's not moving and he looks very dead, obviously. Uh, And then to reveal to you, you know, like 10 minutes into that sequence that he's sucking the blood to like regain oh, just, life. Just one of the most disturbing like, I, moments the first in time a film. I, yeah. When I, the first time I watched that and it was in theaters, actually, I got lucky because it was, uh, when we did that th- like three years ago or whatever, uh, at the yeah, we, we, we did, we did it. We did a Halloween double feature of silence, of the lambs and Texas chainsaw on 35. Yeah, <laughs> it was unreal. And when I saw that, I was just absolutely shocked. I, I did. I really honestly didn't see that coming and it, it, uh, it uh, it chills me. It's just oh well, my. and 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 it, it's a 
it's a way too that the the film is just so despite the fact that it is like a really clean brisk 80 minutes it is somehow still so peppered with small details like that like yeah. when they go into the house and like for example there's dialogue set up early where they talk about you know how in the slaughterhouse they never wasted a part of the body they use the joints they use the jowl they use the eyes they made a uh, use of everything so that right. it wasn't kind of like so a they're making kill. like furniture with stuff and yeah so then when she goes into the house and you see you know the furniture made out of human remains and made out of hair the and biggest of one skin, for me skeletons. is that face mask that they turned into a light that, that yeah. she sits at the dinner table and it's there the whole time, just right in front of her. And it's yeah, so it, it looks like a shrunken head that's like glowing like a sun or something. Yeah, it is so <laughs> nasty. Well, and but also, it, but, also uh, Leatherface's wardrobe changes. Oh yeah, uh, he, he gets all he gets puts all the makeup, makeup on. Yeah, makeup. Yeah, he's got yeah, a he's, suit. He's got like a specific wig for happy homemaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it's a very Southern that, lady thing. Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's stuff that's never actually like uh, explicitly addressed. It's just in the design and the, and the detail yep. is like there, there's, there's a larger sort of like really scary implied history. And that's what you get when, when you get her run into the house and she runs up the stairs and all of a sudden she finds grandma and grandpa upstairs and she's at begging for help thinking she's found two old people who live in the house. And then they bring the grandfather down to literally suck the blood out of her finger and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's just like sanity. It, it, yeah. Like it, 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 it's actually so insane to the point of like, cause again, the, the actual plot itself is really simple. And, and a lot of the characters I think are, are sort of like simply drawn. Yeah. And I think a lot, there are some people who I think don't necessarily see how that could then translate into some, a film that is like actually transcendent. But I think it's in something that you actually feel watching this film. There's something so primal and like elemental about the way that they've done it, that it does achieve like this weird, like metaphysical terror, yeah. despite the fact that the film is really stripped to like its barest, like tangible essentials of, of, of horror. It's really a lot in the style and, and, and the mood, which comes from obviously, you know, there's these, there's a lot of like deep colors. Obviously there's that really hot Texas, like red and orange sun. But then when it goes into nighttime and they're, again, they're using these really low light um, film stock where it, it's 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 difficult to see so you can tell that they had to like really over, try to almost overlight it a little bit with some of the blue i'm not sure what technique they actually used if they just like opened up the lens or like what 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 exactly they did to it to achieve that like really harsh blue color that they get when it goes to nighttime but like for example that sequence where she's running through the forest Oh my god! And which is which is the beginning of a thirty-minute sequence of her just screaming nonstop, and the sound design there definitely uh, helps in you feeling like you're trapped in some sort of like eternal hell void of some sort. Oh, for sure. But then you get like this really dark photography where her fa her the only thing lit up really is her skin in blue, as she is being literally like cut and grabbed by like trees and like nature and that gets you into like that elemental like there's a shot of a full moon and then a shot of like branches literally like cutting her skin open which apparently <laughs> like by the way dead. they they actually did cut her skin open and she was like just literally bleeding on set apparently oh, everybody wow. hated toby hooper by the end of the film because everyone <laughs> sustained some sort of injury well she ended up working <laughs> with them again so that's good i guess <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, they, they they said that uh they all forgave him when the movie ended up becoming like a massive success oh, that, how nice of them <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, I but mean, they said the, the actual, the actual thing, but like, well, yeah, funny. but well, that's just it is they said like after the rap party and after people had like had a few weeks distance from the project, yeah. people were like, all right, we're calm down now. But like they said during the filming, which again, because it was show so cheap and they didn't have a lot of time with the rental equipment, like they literally shot 16 hour days in uh like what is 100 degree fahrenheit weather in texas they didn't have multiple costumes for anyone so like everyone had to do the full 16 hour days in the same like in 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 the same shirt and they said that no one even wanted to hang out with the dude who was playing leatherface by the end because his shirt (laughs) just smelled so bad And, and 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 just that energy of like really sweaty exasperation that sort of like infects the whole movie. It's like literally part of just like the, uh, the filming conditions that they, that they had. I mean, um, sa- and y- uh, Marilyn Burns costume was supposed to be so saturated with blood by the end of the movie that it had gone solid. So it was really yes. stiff and difficult to move in. <laughs> oh yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah. And, she, yeah, and, and again, she's covered she, by the end. So, and well, and, uh, a lot of it is stage blood and, but they were also saying that she got cut open a lot during the, uh, the, tree running sequence and right. that they actually also cut her during the sequence with um, the hammer and the knife when grandpa's like sucking on her finger and stuff that they actually cut her as well they so act- she was not having how uh, did they a actually great time. cut her with the the knife and stuff do you know anything that just seems like no the trees thing seems like oh sorry it was an environmental accident <laughs> my bad the knife thing though is kind of like yo toby maybe you should be a little bit more responsible <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know if it was an accident or if it was him doing uh, a goddamn like Hitchcock psycho thing where he's like, no, yeah. I have to use the knife. I have to scare the shit out of her. I don't <laughs> know if like that was what was going on or not. It's kind of hard to say yeah. with uh, productions. Um, I mean, the, the chainsaw in some scenes was also real. So oh, yeah, oh I yeah, they yeah. Didn't they take they, the chain off at all, and they almost no. hit the uh, the cameraman at the end with his famous dance or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. So like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Which, 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 by the way, like again, the the structure of this is that it kind of begins as a bunch of teens getting picked off in what would be like you know like sort of like the the original slasher formula. But the last half hour of this is like actually like just like a bizarre like it's nightmare almost, hellscape. It's like, almost like a physical comedy. Like it's like this dark physical comedy at a certain point with what with not with uh, the way that Sally's dealing with it, obviously, but the way that the, 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 the family is just so constantly spastic. They're, they're yelling at each other in, in these deep Southern accents and saying ridiculously <laughs> stupid things and, 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 and slapping <laughs> the, each other around like they're the three stooges, but, but way darker. And yeah, it's just bizarre. The cook's delivery of look what your brother did to the door. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it makes you laugh. Yeah. It is. It's very but, funny. But see, the, that's what I was talking about when I talked about sort of like this perverse, like unhinged twist on like the American family unit on like this sort of like. Uh, again, it's it's just like an abusive father and 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 a two sons relationship, but like the actual actions that they do are so horrifying that you're kind of stuck in this middle ground of like these guys are like actually pretty funny and like you almost kind of I wouldn't say necessarily you find them likable people, but like you definitely sympathize a little bit, um, and then you know 
their desperation followed by a knowledge of tools and a complete lack of humanity all stripped stripped down into like this really like blunted vicious violence which like almost i think uh takes on like a because it's again so low budget and so blunted and so to the point it does take on like a bit of like this snuff quality to it which i find like really scary and especially because um there really isn't like a whole lot of gore to it it's just but it's still really viscerally unpleasant to watch which by the way was what i was referring to when they said that the uh toby hooper actually aimed for a pg rating and by aiming for a pg rating what he means is that he uh he put in like the least amount of gore possible he thought (laughs) but also all the images that are implied are just so much worse than like yeah i I think i think that's what he didn't count on yeah i have a a brief personal story uh about about that particular topic and it goes into this and that is that when i was a kid and this is also how i became obsessed with this movie um my my parents well mainly my aunts my aunts and my grandmother would let me watch like whatever slasher movie I wanted, like I was seven or eight and I'd already seen all the Elm streets and, you know, Friday the 13th and Chucky's and all that. And so uh, my dad's friend had recorded from HBO Transformers, the animated movie. And when that movie ended, Texas Chainsaw Massacre would come on and you'd get the John Larroquette <laughs> narration. And I remember vividly any adult with, with an earshot of that narration would run into the room and rip the VHS out of the, <laughs> I like, I, I just kept wondering, like, what is this forbidden movie I'm not allowed to see? And um, that, uh, years later, I ended up at a uh, mall haunted house, which was like a, a haunted house you'd walk through through, like, uh, abandoned shops in a mall that they'd set up all these tableaus in. And one of them, everything goes dark, and the John Larroquette narration started off. And I was so much more afraid because I didn't know what this was than I would have been <laughs> if I had if it hadn't been given this forbidden quality. And I, I go through all this just to say that when I finally saw it, I realized that both the body count and the viscerally upsetting deaths are way higher in Transformers the Animated Movie than they are in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> like, the, the, Im- the implied violence of Texas Chainsaw is so much worse in the memories of all the adults around you that saw it and were like, you can't watch this, but... What they don't tell you and what they don't really remember is just that it's viscerally everything else about the movie that makes it as upsetting and horrible as they can recall. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, talking about the infamous meat hook scene, I mean, they make they, they go through such pains to show Pam's backless dress so that you can see her back. And yep. right. there's all these scenes that focus on the back. But when he goes to put her on the meat hook and, if, and like talking to my parents about it, like, oh, yeah, God, I remember I remember it looked like he put her right on a meat hook. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. But when you watch the movie, there's this one second insert of her back and then she's on the hook. But they don't ever actually show the hook penetrate her. No. And it's it's but it's so much more upsetting because your brain filled the gap. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and also like just like the the really dread inducing tone that he set up and the way that, again, he 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 kind of blunts the violence and then adds like the sort of like abstract quality to it at the same time. Like it's a very like vicious, ferocious movie. It's just not as detailed with gore shots as people like to remember that it is, which is so funny because you know, he, he, he limited the amount of gore shots that he, he could. And he also put no nudity 
which for again for a, a slasher film and especially even later slasher films he would include nudity you could tell that he stopped giving a shit about that because he was yeah. like they're gonna give my movie an x rating regardless of what i put in it uh after texas chainsaw um but it, it it was funny when they were he was like yeah man this is just a pg movie to me this is fine uh, all the all, all the uh, like textures of like rotting flesh, <laughs> like melting in the hot sun, yeah, and then faces uh, being turned I mean, into furniture. Yeah, meat hooks shot. Even just shots of meat hooks and shots of skin edited together is enough for you to be like, God damn it! I hate the <laughs> I hate it. I hate everything. <laughs> even the like even the first scene with the hitchhiker, like he's got this uneasy meth head vibe and. Like, even his, like, really spastic nature, you know, he's he's doing weird things the whole time, and then eventually cuts one of them with a with a knife. So, like, even that is is far more frightening than just watching a serial killer stab somebody over and over again. It's mm-hmm. it's these it's these like unpredictable characters that make it so scary because you just don't you truly do not know what these guys are going to come up with next yeah and and not only is it unpredictable but it's there's there's a sense too of like a um a sort of like inhuman i I wouldn't say like strength i guess but like there's that bit where uh franklin after he cuts himself in the in in the car he he's talking to one of the other kids and he says um do you think that you could do that to yourself Oh right! Uh, like 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 cut yourself, and then he he almost seems sort of like impressed with him, where he says, "I think it takes something to do that to yourself." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That so there, there there's this Something's kind of there. like yeah there's there's this quality to them that's like they are doing something that people maybe shouldn't be able to do and then it also coincides with them talking too about like astrolog astrological evil and like seeing things and and it, it really does just lead to the like what again is a really focus on like the physical and the elemental and like this is all grounded in very real things that are happening but there is a psychological um, perversity to it. There is like, again, it takes some, it takes a, a psychological strength to, to do that to yourself. It takes a psychological strength to maybe do that to another human body. And that's why you get the focus on the human body. And then also like this, just sort of like psychological, almost by the end, it's like pretty much like mania. It's like a, a sensory overload by the time Sally has been screaming for 30 minutes straight and that's been the soundscape. Oh, and also by the way, the other thing on the soundscape, they did not have the money for a score. So they literally just recorded a bunch of sounds inside the slaughterhouse that they filmed. That, oh, so that's why it's so like metallic and and just kind of it, it reminded me of just like industrial sounds basically. Yes, yeah, so so every sound you hear in the soundscape that's not um like a sort of like the the scary free music sounds that they they got are uh sounds that cows would hear inside a slaughterhouse which was the idea for the soundscape and then it just so and it also further reminds you of just like the idea of of like metal and rust and and mm -hmm. and all that you know coming into contact with meat and like these people who are trapped like there's a lot of focus on like that chicken in the cage and right cows cows being led to the slaughter like these characters are being shoved into like a meat grinder and this is like a really beautiful like hellish depiction uh of of that and and beautiful in like 
we'll say a really disgusting way because like (laughs) as we get to like the big climax when sally's running out she's covered in blood she's screaming her head off she's screaming in the middle of the road as trucks are driving by her a giant truck runs over ed neal uh i don't know what they used as the dummy there but it Honestly, it's it's pretty good considering the budget that they had. Oh yeah, it, uh, it crumples horrifically. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And I gotta say, there's his something body just to gets said, flattened. There's something to be said also just about how like chaotic the resolution of this movie is. Like it's it's oh it's there like, is no resolution. Well, this is a well, movie I that mean, doesn't end. No, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. I guess more for like Sally's character, the uh, the one protagonist that we have that has gone through this from beginning to end, and she does escape i just even even her escape is messy like it's not just oh i found the trucker i get in and we go it's find the trucker he gets out sees leatherface he runs back in he goes back (laughs) into the truck the leatherface gets him out of the truck then another pickup truck comes like it's just it's absolute chaos (laughs) and it represents the entire movie so well and it's just i i fucking love this last 15 minutes it's unbelievable well, and that 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 shot of Sally as she's driving as she's riding away, like just laughing at oh, in, like, yeah. pure shock and relief, like laugh I, screaming. I, <laughs> it is it is the one of the best final shots in all of cinema. But also, it's oddly enough the shot that most slasher movies now are stealing from. Oh uh, yes, sure. uh, the strangers pray is it the strangers pray at night. Strangers two ends on that image, and then right after that, the latest Halloween movie ended on that image. Yep, driving away in the back of the truck. Yep, and, uh, and then and then, and then I will even say, I think I love the fact that the, even the movie itself, like it, it doesn't uh, like it, it shows it shows Sally screaming, and then even the last shot has to be the chaotic nature of of Leatherface, and so it oh, never yeah. feels like it. Like and and this is where I I totally agree with you. It, like it never feels like it ends in that way because it still mm-hmm. ends with him being as spastic as he was at the beginning and you know they're just going to kill people plus we see the 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 trucker he doesn't get back into his truck so it's like what happened to that guy is that guy just about yeah. to is that guy about to go to dinner now I, I think it's pivotal that the chainsaw is still revving at the fade to black oh yeah absolutely yeah cuz cuz just just hearing her cathartic like maniacal scream laughs covered in blood in the back of the vehicle and then you get what is like this genuinely beautiful yeah. uh like orange lens flare shot of Leatherface doing like a chainsaw ballet that almost looks like the shot compositionally could be from like Terrence Malick's like Badlands or something but it's <laughs> Leatherface like w- you know th- whipping a chainsaw around above his head and again it, again it's just a way that a chainsaw would never be used it's not practical right it is literally just a an, an expression of like a unhinged state of mind and yeah. like a, a, a feeling it is it is it is expressing something beyond what is physically happening which is why again I think that the power of this movie is in sort of like a, a metaphysical quality, something that's right. much, much scarier, something implied beyond the body. Like something um, I remember too, like when, when they're in the dinner scene and uh, they're doing all their kind of like chaotic shit they're doing with their family, he constantly goes back to Sally and does these really hard cuts and close-ups to her face that are just so Oh yeah, these extreme close-ups. Yeah, they're so yeah. disorienting and, and just crazy. The, the the one that's on the blood capillaries in her eyes. Yes. Like it, oh my just god. Like, like that is that is almost like an experimental image shot. Yeah, for um, sure. Of of like of like expressing how 
like deep that terror is going into her at that point that it is being exposed in like uh veins in her eyes basically and it's it's such a memento mori it's such a reminder that you as the audience are meat (laughs) yes yeah makes you feel uh very very mortal (laughs) yeah well and 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 that that ending too it, it it really echoes the and and like again that that feeling of vulnerability of being a a the, the psychological terror of realizing that to someone else you are a piece of meat that means nothing. Yeah. There is like uh, the the tagline on the poster. I keep forgetting what it was. It was like who will survive, who will survive? What will be left of them. Yes. And it's, it's that what will be left of them. That's so important because that is really what you're left feeling when, when you leave this, when it, when it cuts to black, you are left with the exact same feeling that Sally is meant to have as a character, as you, as an audience member, which is what the fuck just happened? What did any of that mean? Does my brain still work? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And like, to me, that's like, that is unbelievable horror. Like that is again, you know, what, what's also scary is someone chasing you with a chainsaw. What's also Mm -hmm. scary is a chainsaw piercing flesh getting, uh, you know, sort of like the bodily harm that's happening. But there's also this sense of this exists this thing is out there. There's nothing you can really do about it, except now, you know, it exists. It feels like a movie that like loses grip on its sanity as it goes on. And it just ends in a complete void of terror. And you're just like, that's it. And then that's it. It doesn't give you anything else after that. It's just like, this is a thing that happened. This is a thing that's out there. Yeah. Uh, Good luck. And even the credits, (laughs) the credits themselves don't have like really much of a score. So even that you're not left with anything to, to grab onto it's just it's just the chaotic dance of Leatherface and then credits and you're left with like what the fuck was that craziness well and and I, I wanted to bring up two real quick because we were talking about the psychological power of you know what it would take to do something like this to somebody and on this particular viewing I found it so interesting watching the cook Drayton Sawyer scenes where he's talking about how I don't have it in me I don't have a taste for the killing you know, like, yeah. like he's, he's, he's perfectly fine letting someone else do it. And he's perfectly fine cooking the, cooking the results of it. But, yeah. but he, but he himself can't do it. And it ties so much into just this concept of food in both films of like what we're willing to eat as long as we're not the ones who pull the trigger on the air gun or you <laughs> know, swing the hammer. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he says, uh, his exact line I think is, I just can't take no pleasure in the killing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, like they are his his sons are straight up like torturing a woman at his dinner table. <laughs> and he's laughing. As he, as he's like, get her, grandpa, get her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he just can't find no enjoyment. No. Yeah, which which by the way, I I forgot to mention one thing too before we enter the reductive rating round here. One one thing uh to the one of my favorite like sort of like pure style moments in this is when she first escapes Leatherface and she 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 runs out of the house, she jumps through the window, she makes it to the gas station and there is this moment of like relief where she's like holy shit, I've made it away. I've made it back to the normal guy that we spoke to at the gas station. But there is an amazing moment that happens in here where uh, she gets left. He basically says, like, I'm going to get the truck. Uh, I'll bring the truck around. We'll get out of here. I'll help you out. Don't worry. But he leaves through the gas station door Mm -hmm. and he leaves the door open. 
Um, and the composition shot is almost the exact same composition as the shot when the, the guy looks into the, uh, oh, yeah. the house and he sees all the way down the hallway and you see the open, uh, doorway at the very end, which is where he eventually gets pulled in and the, uh, the, the slam happens. So it's the exact same shot as that, but it's the in this very naturally lit interior. And then outside it is that crazy blue lighting of the nighttime mm-hmm. And, but there's one distinction here. She looks over to the left and she looks at the barbecue filled with meat. And it's just like this deep hellish, like red glow. Yeah. And she's basically stuck and it it sits with her just sitting here thinking that she's have some sort of relief. But then this tone just gets back in where she's sitting there. She won. She looks to her left. She's looking at meat cooking in hell. She looks to the right. There's this empty doorway that we are trained now due to the visual vocabulary yeah. to be scared of with like this blue void lighting. And Leatherface and it holds just on her. Yeah. And so it holds on her looking back and forth between those two things for like 30 seconds. Yeah. And then, obviously, that's when he comes back and picks her up and takes her back to the house. Beats her with a broom for a little while. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And once again, just like the reassuring uh, nature of everything happening during the daytime, even in this scene, like, the soundtrack is just the soothing song of crickets. Yeah. Yeah, and, well, and, and the, uh, the country tune, which I have list, I went up and looked up what the country tune is, and I, uh, the lyrics are all about, uh, a, uh, what sounds like from the point of view of a child scared of an abusive father oh, wow. uh, who's an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and the line that it ends on in the chorus goes, uh Oh, looks like daddy's sick again. Oh, <laughs> Fo- followed by uh, him poking at her in her meat sack. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Holy hell. So yeah, again, there's, there's this extended family history that this has gone on for generations and again the the sort of implied history of this whole thing that it's been happening for decades and it's going to keep happening really gives this movie a feeling like it doesn't actually really begin or end it's just you noticed it and it brutalized you and then that's it that's the story it's it's going to continue to do so to others uh, yep. bef- before we get to that reductive rating round, I wanted to comment on one thing, because I've, I've listened to a lot of, uh, you know, stuff about Texas Chainsaw, and so I wanted to come briefly in defense of the character of Franklin. Oh, <laughs> sweet. You know what's funny? I was I was actually going to ask about Franklin, so and you. <laughs> uh, so, just watching this movie uh, over and over, uh, it, it becomes more clear, because I think the perception of Franklin is that he is such a, he's, he's, an, he's an obnoxious character. But given the circumstances he is in, his attitude throughout the movie makes absolute sense. Oh, yeah. He is the, I mean, he, he, is, he is wheelchair bound in a time and place that is in no way accessible to him. Uh, it is sweltering heat. He's the only person there that is not in a couple. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and, he, and he, like, even, even toward the end, he's just completely left alone repeatedly. <laughs> He's also, <laughs> yeah. like, in my opinion... Now, I think, because when I was uh, watching it, my, my mom kept saying, like, oh, wow, he's kind of annoying. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I got what she was saying, because which, he does which, have a whining... Which is the, it, it is the typical reaction most people have to the film, yeah, I feel like. because he does have, like, a whining um, delivery to a lot of his lines. But the thing is, is, like, 
by this time, the guy has been cut by a hitchhiker that they randomly picked up that he did not, I think, decide. He didn't make that decision. Uh, and they move on so fast from that. Like, as soon as oh, he gets yeah. cut, they're already going back to the zodiological charts. Like, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then... And then they're, you know, they're they're ditching him, and it's and it's his and it's his uh, dad's like old place, so he feels like he wants to kind of join them at least a little bit in this adventure. And they, you know, they go upstairs and they don't uh, they don't talk to him or try to help him out or anything like that. So at a certain point, I totally understand why he would be in this kind of miserable, a little bit whiny mood. Um, and I personally find him to be the most like likable in a in a way. Um, well, I, I think that he's the least who's like a clear type of a lot of the other characters. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of characters don't have a whole lot of personality to them. Like, I think that they're solid. And I mean, Marilyn Burns as Sally, obviously. She's great. Um, her, her performance, especially as she is the one who gets to enter like the full out hellscape, yeah. the like uh, dreamy hellscape it ends up actually going into means that obviously she becomes... Uh, her psychological perspective becomes extremely relatable as the re- movie's relentlessness just keeps going on and on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I will say that, like, on like a a performance like detail level, I think that he is like the most like uh, revealed character. Like, he's yeah, the one who absolutely. gets like the interesting lines about how, like, you know, uh, like the the really moody lines about how you know you you would like it if you didn't know what was in it or being right. impressed by how that guy had the strength to cut himself and like he has like an interesting psychological point of view He's the only one like thinking about it really. The others are just kind of passively going through everything until Well they, they want to get laid. Oh he, yeah, exactly. He's not thinking about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh but yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree. I think that Franklin gets a little bit. I mean, I think people think a lot of the characters are just kind of you know, Dumb. sort of like, yeah, they, I think that they think that they're just like annoying. Even Sally trying to like run alone and, and Franklin's being like, no, we sh- you shouldn't go we alone. We should stay. Yeah. 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 That's when you're doesn't like, end up working out for him anyway. No, but. it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Cause yeah, him, him getting chainsawed in the gut in the middle of the forest, blood squirting all over Leatherface mask. <laughs> yeah. Pretty not gross not the best outcome for Franklin. Uh, but yeah, pivoting towards the reductive rating round, I mean, this is probably going to be super obvious to everyone. This is literally just five on, 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 on certain days. This is just like a, a top five of all time Yeah, this uh, for me. Not, 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 not just in the horror genre, just in general, in, in all films, a uh, friend of the show, Rick Kane, when I mentioned that we were going to be doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, went as far as to say, and I kind of agree with him that it, it might just be the most important independently made American film. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like setting out a both a, a vision of style, I think a lot of people have been inspired by the stylistically, um, and then also uh, you know it's it's cultural influence in basically birthing <laughs> what we now know as the formula for the every slasher I mean, film. There's we've been ever remake seen. after remake of this thing too, so they won't stop. Yeah, never, never. They're gonna do prequels <laughs> and sequels, and they're gonna have a universe. They pretty much do already. This is but the again, movie. This is the movie you will forever think about whenever you take a wrong turn on a road trip. <laughs> like this. Yeah. This is to ro- this is to road trips what Jaws is to beaches. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I, for all the reasons we basically said, this definitely gets the super easy five, the highest oh, yeah. five that you could probably give. Um, but I, I think that it has just an amazing combination of being a very stripped down sort of simplistic story that is so. Um, 
stylishly shot and cut together on its limited budget that it achieves um, something beyond its tangible qualities. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tangible qualities like the, the actual sequencing of sort of like physical events are, are very vicious. And as I've said, they kind of take on like the very viscerally unpleasant despite not being gory, which gives them this very, I find like realistic snuff quality that I find even scarier than maybe if he showed gore. Um, and then also again, putting it into just this like really elemental primal psychological, um, headspace and abstracting a lot of what you see into something that really becomes terrifying and disturbing and menacing in more of like a metaphysical way, I think is really, really impressive. And what has like had this movie actually stand, um, the test of time. Yeah. Um, so from, yeah, for- from the, from the radio broadcasts at the very oh, running constantly over the um, opening credits with just vivid descriptions of brutality and murder and a grisly work of art. <laughs> yeah. And, and, not, not, and not just the fictional crimes. There's that crawl of just actual crimes on the radio that keep playing over yes. the credits. And from there to that insert shot of the just massive pile of daddy long leg spiders with the squeaky sound they added over it. Oh like God. It, yeah. This, this movie does a, more exceptional job than anything I can think of as presenting America as a place that will eat you alive. Uh, and for that reason, I think it is the most American film. <laughs> Five stars. Yeah, f- yeah, for sure. I mean, like all those intense close-ups of like things made out of human remains or the, the capillaries on the eyeball, the, the, the meat hook, and then just, you know, Marilyn Burns's excellent performance of just pure terror. It actually reminds me a lot of what, uh, Stanley Kubrick would try to get out of Shelley Duvall in The Shining, just just yeah. like this pure psychological uh, like assault, combined with Toby Hooper's like sensory overload of some of his his filmmaking, especially as it ramps up to like the completely unhinged finale. Yeah, <laughs> it's insanity. Uh, yeah, I'm also gonna give it a five. This is this might be my favorite horror movie. I'm not quite sure, but it's uh, it's definitely like top five with it without a doubt. Um, I really don't have much more to add. I just I fucking love this movie so much, and everyone needs to watch it if you haven't already because it's an it's a classic. So come on and watch people. it again if you have. Come on. Yeah, abs- yeah. Come on now, watch it two times in a row. Yeah. It took it's us only took us too minutes, long so. to get to this one. All right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking about on the a bit of the opposite side of the food cinema spectrum. <laughs> Tampopo. <laughs> We are back and we are talking Tampopo, the 1985 Japanese comedy film written and directed by Juzo Itami um, and starring a uh, bunch of uh, well-known Japanese actors. Um, 
such as uh, Yamakazi or is Yamazaki, not yep. Yamakazi. Yamazaki Still Yamazaki from, from uh, Kurosawa's like High and Low, and I think he was also in Redbeard too, right? I haven't I haven't seen that one in a long time. But also, it has a very young Ken Watanabe, and it also has uh, Koji uh, Yakusho from uh, Cure. Which it was a great, great to see him again because oh, nice. uh, I don't, th- I don't think I've seen him since. Uh, uh, he was in some other Kiyoshi Kurosawa films like Tokyo Sonata as well, but uh, I think last time I saw him was Thirteen Assassins, maybe by uh, Takashi Miike. Okay. Yeah, this was um, his feature film debut. Wow! Oh wow! Before what this, a debut! Before this, he'd re- before this, he'd really only been in like Jidai Geki TV dramas and like period pieces. And Ken Watanabe was so unknown at the time that in Juzo Itami's uh, shooting diary, where he goes over every member of the cast, all he says about Ken Watanabe is, he once played an Incan in a play version of Pizarro. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which is so amazing, because obviously Watanabe would go on to be one of the sort of like main uh, American uh, production Japanese character actors that people just seem to always go to. Which is, you will I, find him in Chris I, Nolan movies and in Godzilla movies and Transformers movies even. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is ironically the fate of the film itself as uh, Nobuko Miyamoto, who plays the title character Tampopo, uh, she has remarked this movie was way more popular overseas than it ever was in Japan. Really? Okay, yeah. That I mean, that honestly, I kind of understand why. And, and part of that, I will say, is that because, like, it does feel very steeped in, obviously, like, Japanese food culture. Yeah, um, that's why but, I'm actually curious as to why that would be the case. Cause, well, because do you know, because do you know what? It, the film language is not remotely, I think, um, as, as Japanese as it... Because it, it is... I mean, they, he literally called it himself a ramen western, which was a play on words for spaghetti western. Okay. They would call it, like... That's what they would well, call where, Italian where westerns. Where do you think, like... Because what this... This movie obviously has, like, a main plot, a main storyline, main characters, all that. But what it also does is kind of uh, diverge into, like, these really small subplot kind of almost sketches, it seems. Um, yes. And so... I was curious as to like that to me didn't seem overly Western. Uh, that that seemed you don't think so. Pretty, that reminded well, me a lot of Monty like, Python and like what we were just talking about with like the Zucker brothers and stuff like that. Well, sure, like I would say it's a little comedy. bit. It's like it, it, right. So that's what I think. I think this is a combination of like Western and sketch comedy. Oh, okay. Which to me is like what the visual language and what like the actual sort of cinematic language that it's regarding. I mean, like it even has a guy come open the film um, by coming up and saying, oh, you're at the movies, too. And like it it opens up as like this metatextual thing sort of like about the joy of movies and watching movies. This is very clearly a movie that is um, shot with a sense of what feels like American Western film tropes and stuff like that. Oh, and yeah. I mean, you're Euro- European as well. Um, but like, that's definitely like when the, when the main guy gets off his truck with his cowboy hat and goes into a bar and, you know, gets into a, oh, you know, yeah, like, that... like a fist fight in the bar over honor and stuff like that is something I think that unless you're a Japanese audience familiar with a Sergio Leone film or f- familiar with a Howard Hawks film, like you're not going to relate to the visual language as much as, you know, people who did nothing but absorb Westerns for 40 years well, <laughs> are going to like American critics loved this film more than anybody else in the world. I think I, and I, I can't really speak to all that, but I, I can say that Itami himself 
is a voracious consumer of westerns. Uh, he, yes. Uh, there's, and there's a few places that touches in beyond the obvious, but it's like if you watch the behind-the-scenes featurettes, he's constantly telling the actors to act more like they're in a Western. Like, he, like, <laughs> like he's telling Nobuko Miyamoto, like, at one point, he's like, he's like, put your hands on your hips, you know, like a school marm in a Western. Or, yeah, yeah. When, you're, w- when you're walking away, I want this to feel like the movie Shane. <laughs> yeah, so, like, th- that's, that's what I mean. Like, this movie is operating on people who would be familiar more with the movie Shane uh, well, in I terms think- of, like, the actual character and visual language of what's happening it's just the the actual cultural specificity of what's happening is still very japanese okay that i guess that's what i was gonna say is that like that stuff i totally get what you're saying the it's just when it comes to certain things like the structure of it and all that that did seem slightly more experimental than i was expecting um and also when it gets to really bizarre things like the uh the couple that pretty much has sex with food and I will say, uh, watching, I watched this one with my family as well, and I think, I, <laughs> I, I think that I had way more discomfort watching this than I did watching Texas Chainsaw with them. Because <laughs> when they start swapping the eggs and shit and like the crab uh, gyration or whatever you want to call it, oh my god. I was just like, hey, hey mom, thanks for being beside me while we're watching this movie together. <laughs> The the it's the just that is sex, bizarre and surreal, you know. The the food sex is it's it's definitely the one reason I can't recommend this to just anybody to watch with your family. <laughs> and the fact that that's how you first did this is incredible to me. I, like I read the synopsis and I was just like, oh, okay, it says comedy under the genre, no like yeah. weird sci-fi or thriller. I'm so like, okay, so it's not really going to take a turn. So it's a comedy. It's about <laughs> no. it's about ramen noodle, uh, a ramen noodle restaurant who's down on her luck. I mean, I can watch this with my family, and then all of a and sudden, not boom! A- <laughs> they're having sex with squids. Well, and and we should we should point out that this this movie is structured like vignettes. So, so there is the main story <laughs> of the woman trying to run a successful uh, ramen restaurant with the help of a trucker cowboy who's going to teach her the ways of ramen. But yes, Koji Yakusho. Uh, you know, the, the man who would eventually become a legendary international success in movies like Shall We Dance. His first <laughs> his first big film role is that he is playing a white-suited Yakuza who loves to indulge in food sex with his mistress. <laughs> and, like, and so you get these, like, ludicrous scenes of, like, him putting a, a live crayfish on her belly to make it twitch and jump around while she laughs like she's being tickled. And they're so and much more bizarre than like anything else going on in the film. So it's just, and then, and, and, and then swap egg yolks uh, uh, in between their mouths. Several times. Like oh, it, okay. It, they so, la- that shot lasts for like three full minutes. The story of the egg yolk behind the scenes is kind of amazing. Uh, they they had hired uh, a food stylist named Seiko Ogawa. And at the time, food stylists were not a huge uh, role in the film industry. Uh, to her knowledge, there was there was no there were no food stylists in Japanese film up to that point. Uh, so, and she had to go and experiment with every kind of yolk to see what would be the firmest yolk she could find. And <laughs> and, and, and she, and according to her, and she's laughing while she's talking about it. Uh, Juzo Itami and Nobuko Miyamoto, because uh, they were a married team. The main actress in this and the director were married. Uh, to, to her knowledge, they had gone back home and practiced different <laughs> yolks together <laughs> to, like, to make sure this worked. And she said, so we, we found one with the firmness that would not break unless she bit into it. And <laughs> like, 
And, nice. And it, the nice the nice thing I can say is, at least from all the film diary stuff, and again, I, I'm referring to the film diary, it's it's on the Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, it is this 90-minute thing directed and narrated by Juzo Itami himself that goes over almost everything in the movie. Wow, uh, wow. And it's, it's one of the most comprehensive featurettes I've seen, um, but... It, at the very least, it looks like all the food sex scenes were kept very light. So, like, you can see the actor and actress laughing a lot together. And, like, <laughs> right. and when she finishes the egg yolk scene, she's got it dripping down her chin and all over her dress. She, like, smiles and she goes, this is going to be famous in the history of film. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, and, and the, the thing, too, about it, though, is that even when it's not ha- like the, the thing that's distressing, I think, like when you get to like those moments <laughs> And uh, maybe distressing is not necessarily the right word, but the thing that's like impactful and engaging about the food sex stuff is that like the other scenes are also sensually filmed in general because yeah. again, he has such a love of, of you know, like these old movies, these old melodramatic movies. So everything is very sincere. And then there is a sense of like, you know, this is a movie about the pleasure and the the uh, genuine love of food. So, like, the actual food itself is shot very sensually, even when there's nothing, like, sexual happening. Like, it's not with the Yakuza sex freak. Um, but, like, even there's just There's a stuff romanticism like, to it still, yeah. Exactly. I mean, especially in that first scene after after we get past the, uh, you know, uh, the Yakuza is, is watching the movies and talking about how... Uh, a film is a kaleidoscope of 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 life, and then he gets really upset at the one dude who the one dude who's crinkling his bag of chips during the movie. He's like, "If this movie fucking starts and you're crinkling that bag of chips, like I will kill you." <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile, meanwhile, he's got a he's got a full course feast set up in front of his movie scene. <laughs> in the front yeah. row, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but the the first scene after that, when we're introduced to the truckers, the truckers are reading a book, and the book is about a sensei. Uh, who is teaching them how to cook the perfect ramen and not how to cook it actually how to eat the perfect ramen how to respect that ramen and and, and I love some of the lines that he has where he's like first you must contemplate the ramen (laughs) you must observe the entire bowl the simmering the pork the aroma you need to show it affection and then my personal favorite line that he says I want you to quietly apologize to the pork (laughs) (laughs) for tucking it away and telling it until we meet again yeah. <laughs> and while you're yeah, eating so the noodles, th- never take your eyes off the pork. Always watch it, contemplating it. Right. So there, there, there's this idea of like ramen as like a religious ritual, something that like connects us and is worthy of like a, a, a greater respect. And like that stuff feels very steeped in like, you know, the, the specific culture. But yeah. again, the way that he actually films this stuff is just like, you know, uh, at one point, there's like a montage that is like just a clear ripoff of like Rocky, like a Rocky training montage as they're oh, like yeah. learning how to cook the perfect ramen. And, and I mean, that to me summarizes too what is so fun and engaging about this film is that something so lighthearted as like, I want to create the perfect ramen. I want to open up a shop that sells the best ramen in town. So we need to learn every aspect of the ramen and I need to train it the way that like, you know, you would show like a gun shooter teaching like a young kid how to fire his gun and become the best gunslinger in town. She's going to cook the best roll of ramen and it's just adorable. It's very quaint. It's kind of silly, but in a way that's very knowing and very fun. And yeah, watching just like this, this, you know, the, the little lady, like, doing uh exercise routines but like between giant pots of boiling water of noodles yeah yeah <laughs> and she's like moving one to the other side one to the other side and and there's Filling this whole the idea cups as much as she can or as fast as she can right 
Yeah, and and then there's this whole idea too of like, um, yeah, there's this whole idea of like the space of the shop, the craft of it, the movement, the communication. And so there's this really interesting thing where like they, I mean, like when he's teaching her lessons about it, they're at one point they're doing like corporate espionage and they're going to like other ramen shops to like see, you know, take individual pieces from what the other ramen shops are like doing well. And some are uh, much better than others. Yeah. It becomes like ramen gang wars almost like they're, (laughs) they're infiltrating every restaurant. One of my favorite scenes is when uh, she uses one of the chef's, uh, pride in his in his ramen to get her to tell him the tell her the recipe. So she's like, she's like, well, these noodles don't seem uh, very soft. So how many times did you put it through? And then he reveals that he put it through three times. And she's, she's like, just, no, I put it through the same time this yeah. many times. And yeah. I just love that she like tricks him into telling her through his own pride. Um, now there is a little bit of a question of like. Is there is there ethics involved in the ramen stealing noodle war? people's recipes yeah, in, the, in, the, in the gang war here? Is there is there ethics? Because she definitely does go to a number of restaurants and kind of jack some of the recipes. But I mean, I don't know. It's all it's all played really uh, really playfully and and nice and yeah, it's, lovable. It's, it's really t- it's really tongue in cheek and in that way that like you know again it, it's very structured as like kind of like almost like a western heist situation yeah, at that yeah, point like yeah. very. Very, very lighthearted and 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 fun in that way. And again, it has a very focused, like again, uh, a a much less nihilistic, much more fun vision of uh, what working class food production looks like. <laughs> uh, I would I, I would take Japan's vision of that over uh, Hooper's in like which one do I want to live in? I guess <laughs> yeah, for sure. This one has like a very soft, like egalitarian view of like food as something that like binds us together yeah that it's like another religion it's another language it's it's something that we all communicate through that food is like a universal language i think is like kind of like the overall idea um of the film which is then something that speaks to how this how this actually did um itself as a film speak to so many audiences outside of japan the fact that it wasn't a massive success in japan but maybe was elsewhere i think is um very very interesting yeah. um into how he's communicating his ideas and how he's getting that across i mean for a lot of i was actually reading a lot of old reviews when the film came out because i think it was released uh eventually in 87 in the united mm-hmm. states and american critics fucking loved this film roger ebert uh uh like masterpieced it oh wow um, and was basically like, you know, this is so steeped in Japanese culture, but like everything that it's speaking to was something that I felt was relatable, was something that I felt with food. And even though if I wouldn't do it with this exact ramen, it's just like, you know, an, an entire country who has, you know, like food markets and fairs and cooking competitions and food eating contests and stuff that there, there's something um, in that energy that this kind of uh, captures. Yeah. I, I wanted to go back uh Oh, quite a bit um, to talk about the scene with the ramen master at the beginning, because I think that that gets to the thesis. One of the thesis is of the uh, entire film. Um, and that is that. So during that scene, it's not so much that is an expected cultural way. In fact, uh, one of the, the food stylist jokes about that in her and her part of the commentary where it's like nobody eats ramen this way. We all know that ramen. <laughs> we, we, we all know that ramen is a common food for common people. Uh, yes, so, that's but, a really important note too. By the way, actually, we'll get into that more of that later. Uh, but the idea that like that is such a obvious satire, and it would have been even for a Japanese audience that scene. Yeah, and th- and then it gets into so many of the vignettes touch on 
the ways that sultr- uh, social mores and expectations get in the way of our appetites. Uh, yes, yeah. So that that food and sexuality and that stuff, those are essential appetites that go back to, at least in a, you know in a, in a Tommy's viewpoint, that that long you know final credit sequence over a child breastfeeding. Like these are just primal appetites that we're denying ourselves <laughs> by creating all of these absurd social expectations around. Really perverse way to end the movie. I gotta yeah, say, though, the dude. first meal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it lingers for a very long time. Yeah, um, and it closes up until it ends. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, one long zoom. One long zoom. <laughs> but but we but the, but there are so many vignettes. Like the, the first vignette of the, it's the first time that we cuts away from Tampopo's story. And, all, and I love, by the way, that all the cutaways are introduced by a character walking in or out of the frame and the camera choosing to follow them instead for a little bit. Yeah. Right. That, I, I love that because it does have a very freewheeling, like episodic uh, sketches all connected by food and, and, and pleasure in movies and all of that. Like, But what's interesting is that we just did sketch comedy recently. We did a double feature of um, Monty Python. Uh, the meaning of life, and we did the Zucker Brothers Kentucky Fried movie. Hmm. And something about this is that there is so much grace in the way that the vignettes are stitched together. And even just something like having a random character run through the scene, and then the camera be like, what's that guy doing? And then follow him into his vignette is like really, really simple and engaging way to get you to move into the next scene. Very well done. Yeah. But anyway, continue. Uh, yes. So the, the first vignette we go to follows a corporate party sitting down at a restaurant. And the 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 president orders a specific food item, uh, you know, a specific set of items, and all of the older executives around the table just like fall all over themselves to order the same thing because it's expected that you're going to follow whatever the boss does and not make him look bad. And then yeah. the the youngest person there, who either doesn't understand the expectation or does not care, turns <laughs> out to be this amazing gourmet who comprehensively understands French cuisine and deeply embarrasses all of the old men at the table who don't know anything about food. Uh, yeah. And, and that's such a wonderful scene too. And even just the little physical ways that Itami plays with that there, there is a shot that I, I didn't notice the first few times I've seen it. And I've seen this movie several times now. It's one of my favorites um, is there's a shot where the younger guy is about to sit down before the boss does. And one of the older <laughs> guys physically tears him out of his seat. Yeah, he grabs him by the neck and he just holds him up there. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah was like great. Just, you hang here. Yeah, uh, and then of course you know there's this you know ridiculous uh, sh- red shading of the faces, which Tommy <laughs> took. Tommy apparently took days to figure out the proper red shading. Uh, oh man, yeah, that but, was but, very I mean, funny. You jump from that and immediately into another one about a woman trying to teach Japanese women how to eat like a Westerner, eat spaghetti without making noise, and then there's this like. There's this like slovenly Westerner to the side, just slurping them up, and they're all going like, "Okay, that's the way it's done." But again, like that's a Tommy playing because a, a understanding of Japanese culture is that, especially with ramen and things, if you're enjoying the meal, especially with noodles, you're audibly oh, slurp slurping the shit it. out of it. Yeah, you're yeah. slurping it. So, so it's really funny to see them play with that and go like, "Okay, but Westerners expect you to be quiet." It's like, no, no, I guess they don't. Like, it's just do do what you will. But there's there's so much in this movie that is just about the. Just about responding to your appetites, and as long as as long as all parties are consenting and understanding, including the the very kinky food sex, everybody in that scene seems to be enjoying themselves. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, yeah. The, so, the the girl really did enjoy the uh, the crabs just going nuts on the belly. I will say exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
But you know, and we're not here to kink shame on sleazy. Abs- so absolutely they- <laughs> not. We're, we're, yeah, we're sleazy we, we, we've talked to w- through and through. <laughs> I was like, we've talked about way more perverted people than people who just like to uh, pour shit on each other while doing <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, no, but it, it, it is a very, very jarring scene the first time you watch the movie, though, if you did not come in expecting it. And I don't think anybody does. No, absolutely. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it, I will say. Um, but I, I wanted to uh, talk real quickly about two, just because we didn't really introduce her in the beginning. Um, Tampopo? Uh, yeah, Tampopo herself, and uh, Nabuko Miyamoto. So uh, Nabuko Miyamoto is the, is the wife of uh, director Juzo Itami, she was the lead in every one of his films. Wow. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, and she always, pl- she generally plays roles of, uh, like, in, in jobs that you don't necessarily expect women to lead in in Japanese society at the time. So it's a big deal that she's a ramen cook. Uh, her she- follow-up movie, which was a much bigger success, was a movie called A Taxing Woman, where she plays a uh, tax agent in a time where there were very few female tax agents in Japan. And she, and she goes up against the Yakuza with her skills of perception and uh, deductive, deductive reasoning. <laughs> does, she, uh, like, does she often play um, a very like, sweet uh, character? Because she's so good at, at this like, very innocent kind of just very... She's trying her hardest uh, to get this you know, restaurant off the ground and all that. Like, do, do a lot oh, of her and, characters and she, have this she, innocence? She really wants to help people, like, too. Like, the way that she takes, like, the the, the trucker in after he gets into that fight outside her, her shop and, like, mm-hmm. feeds him the pickle, and she, he's a really big fan of the pickle. <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she has a pretty broad range. I would say that this is cool. probably the kind... This is probably the kindest character she plays. Cool. Like, she's, she's, always, she's always generally a good person. But also, like... For an interesting follow-up to this movie, there was one of Juzo Itami's last movies in the 90s called A Supermarket Woman, uh, in which the the owner of the grocery store in this movie that chases down the old lady squeezing all the fruit, which I think is just <laughs> a, a brilliant bit of physical comedy. Yeah. And we, maybe we can talk about that one a little bit more later. Um, but uh, that supermarket owner is the owner of a supermarket who that is failing in Supermarket Woman. And... Um, Nobuko Miyamoto plays a uh, a widowed housewife who shows up and gives her expertise on how to run a supermarket that housewives will want to come to and trust. Uh, <laughs> and so she gets to be the expert in a much later film and a very similar structure to Tampopo. Awesome. Uh, and, and one more little thing, just a little fun trivia tie-in. Uh, Itami and uh, Miyamoto appear acting together in Kiyoshi Kurosawa's uh, 1989 horror movie Sweet Home, which a oh, lot a, a cool. lot of people might know for the Capcom video game Sweet Home, which was the game that the director of uh, the director of Sweet Home the video game decided to create Resident Evil as a oh, sort shit. of takeoff. So Sweet Home is the foundation of the uh, survival horror genre as we know it, and the Sweet Home video wow. game was produced by Juzo Itami. <laughs> That's fucking Holy unreal. Cool. Right. I have to watch well, that. You just- I've just I've just been adding like I've been quiet because I've been adding like four movies to my watch list as you've been speaking <laughs> and, right now. So. And I l- almost, love Resident Evil. And all of Itami's movies are currently on the Criterion Channel. Excellent. Oh, okay. Well, shit. I I have that. I have no excuse now, and I have so much free time. I've been ripping through so much Criterion Channel lately. But, yeah. If if you like if you like crime movies with a hint of comedy, uh, Taxing Woman is really fun. Mm. Well, I mean, I I just like like clearly. Uh, Itami in general has a command and a knowledge of, of, of genre film in, in general, because the way that he moves between 
genre stuff that he does here. Like at, at one point, obviously there's a lot of Western stuff. There is a lot of, uh, 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 Howard Hawks and, and, and John Ford stuff in like, just like the cowboy hat, the, the walking into a bar, the overall story of like, uh, two, two, uh, sort of like, uh, traveling outsiders wandering into a town and changing the lives of the community inside the town is like the basic structure of every fucking Western you'll ever see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, especially and, him and, and, leaving and, 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 afterwards. And and it ends on like this beautiful like my work here is done. Right. I've made the town better. It has the, there's this really sentimental uh, song to it. Uh, there's even a moment, an amazing shot that I screen capped and posted on Twitter of him wearing his cowboy hat in the bathtub, mm-hmm. which is like uh, oh yeah a sh- a lot of shots you'll see of like John Wayne or Dean Martin and stuff like that. Um, but then also there's a little bit of of at one point there's a full like martial arts fight at one point there's like full out like a uh, melodrama there's physical comedy gags there's pure there, there, dark there, comedy with the scene with the uh the mother who's dying preparing a final meal for her family one of the best <laughs> sketches i laughed my ass off at the father who's like you know he, he he's rushing home because his wife is on on her deathbed and then he's like can you cook can you cook can you cook one more time <laughs> And she makes a meal, and and and, and honestly, it, it's a really beautiful moment too, where she is dying, but she is actually energized by the idea of cooking a meal. There is something sweet about that. About it's that like, that blissful expression she has watching her family eat that meal for the last time. Yeah, yeah, and then she dies at the dinner table, and the father's line that he says, where he's like, "Quick." It was her last meal. Eat while it's <laughs> still hot, or so. Yeah. <laughs> and then it even has like a. Just a such small a good joke. scene of like almost tragedy with uh, the Yakuza guy when when he just gets lit up like with that white suit. It just starts. To, it's it's just <laughs> oh, yeah. it's just red by the by the end of that scene. It's just uh, oh my god. Yeah, well, and, and when he's lying on the ground, he's covered in blood. The rain is coming down. They're the, both crying. The rain this is, is like one the of the rain is pouring into his open eyes. Oh, and Yakusho, yeah. Yakusho, the goat, just takes it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and 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 one thing is that like the visual vocabulary of that and of like that really melodramatic scene is so beautiful and so well done, yeah. and it would be so like in place in like a movie that's taking that moment very sincerely. And instead, he's talking about the method of killing a wild uh, boar skinning and killing a boar and they're they're talking he's talking about taking the intestines and grilling them into sausage and mm-hmm. eating them hot and then she's talking about wasabi and soy sauce and putting it on that <laughs> <laughs> and like this is like one of the like a very tragic end to like a gangster movie or something. Like well, this is like yeah. the end of it's like it's like the end of Carlito's Way with Al Pacino like looking up at the sky dying but instead uh imagine uh, he was talking about like ice cream food prep. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's such a good joke and it's so well done. And I think it speaks to something larger that um, I was reading the essay that comes with the criterion and they made a really compelling argument for this idea that um, ramen is actually sort of like a genre film in the way that it is something that is prepared for mass consumption and mm-hmm. wide, widely available. That it is something that is not seen as necessarily the most artful thing. And part of a lot of the jokes in this, as you, as Casey mentioned, the opening joke about how he consumes, very artfully consumes the Robin and respects it and apologizes to it. Like that's something, it, that is something silly because Robin is like a very basic meal. Yeah. Um, but there is something 
in that individual artists can take genre and can take the basic ingredients of genre and really turn them into something special and meaningful and greater. And so in the, it, it was awesome to read this. There's an entire essay. If you guys pick up the criterion copy on basically this idea of ramen and genre film combined as something that connects us, that it's designed to be consumed and enjoyed and widely available, but to everyone, but can be made into something special by an artist that knows what they're doing. And when you realize that this entire film has been someone collecting all of these individual parts to make the best bowl of ramen, that's kind of what he's doing with the film as well. So there's something interesting happening there. One of the most important exchanges in the entire movie is uh, when they go to the really shady ramen guy's uh, restaurant and um, Tampopo has an argument with him. And he and they're they're kind of calling out like the ways that he's cut corners and that he's not making great ramen. And the the shady, angry guy goes, "You amateurs would never understand ramen the way I understand it." And she responds, "All people who eat ramen are amateurs." So like, and, and it's and it's yeah. and it's not meant as a put down. It's meant as a if your thing is so great, then you know no matter what your palate is, you will find something to appreciate in that. And that's true yeah. of. That's true of food as it is with genre film, as it is with any kind of art. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that that like is, is what kind of took the movie over the edge for me. Like I was having a lot of fun with individual vignettes and stuff, but realizing that there was really like this connective theme of, of the pleasure of, of, of food, of, of, of movies, of things that we just sort of instinctually enjoy, um, and having a very sort of like egalitarian vision of that, of it should be available to everyone. No one should be ashamed of what they like, as long as everyone is obviously a consenting party, yeah. <laughs> which the movie goes through great, great pains to 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 express that, that, you know, we should be um, exploring things that we are passionate about. Um, and that's what I feel really comes across in his films. It really is just like a celebration of of not just taste buds but like the craft that goes into that and the way that we communicate with each other through it and um it, i mean it, it sounds a little silly to be uh you know maybe getting that deep into the film but i i think that it's all there sort of um in the in the implied way that this is all constructed and put together yeah i yes. i also like uh <clears throat> excuse me i also liked uh just the this is a little side thing but the son who's getting uh, bullied throughout the entire thing at the uh, end played he, by but, played played by Itami and uh, Miyamoto's actual son. Oh, really? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Uh, but I love that uh, he's, you know, he's getting bullied the entire time. And then one scene, he just takes on all three of them. And then the next scene, they're all friends. I just, I just thought that that was kind of funny and a little adorable. <laughs> well, and, and, it, and it mirrors um, Piskin and uh, right. the, the trucker getting into a fist fight and also becoming friends. And then right respecting after. each Which, other, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, a massive Western trope. The oh, idea of yeah. two guys who kind of are suspicious of each other getting into a fight. They're and fighting at the edge of each town, other. even. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was the silhouette. Two, two guys under respecting the each, other, each other based on their combat skills <laughs> uh, and through macho physical contact is exactly Hell yeah. uh, what you'll find in so many old Westerns. That's how me and Josh became friends. So, Yeah, we just growled <laughs> at each other. Yeah, yeah. Couple. And then they just, they, they, and as they were icing their wounds, they hit record. And That's so right. It became the first episode of Fleet uh, Yeah. Now, now, now we gotta uh, get some food going in the mix. Yes, for sure. <laughs> 
All right, well, pivoting towards the reductive rating around here, this one gets like a really solid, uh, almost a high four for me, I think. I, I had a lot of, a, a real good time with this film. I mean, it was some, definitely something watching it for the first time. I'd, I'd heard about it a lot, uh, but it, and I'd even heard some of the, uh, you know, people be like, you know, you won't be prepared for certain scenes, and they were right. I was not prepared for certain <laughs> Especially scenes. Especially with your family. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I watched it solo. I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, that would that would must have been a very interesting experience. Well, yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. But I will say, the first time we were like, "Whoa, this is this is different for for family viewing." <laughs> yeah, but I I think that for all the reasons that we've we've mostly already said, but I think ultimately as like just an an expression of pure, specifically like unabashed pleasure, um, is is what really send this over the top and what really connects all the vignettes together. I mean, like whether you're disobeying the social etiquette of your boss or of what constitutes proper sound while you're eating, like every level of this is just designed to be like, if you're enjoying something and everyone else around you is enjoying something like you should, you know, you should be able to enjoy it in the way that you want to. You should be able to, you know, there's, there's this idea of like, again, a, egalitarian vision of food as some sort of universal language or religion that I think, uh, like really gets captured in all of these different vignettes. And especially I think doing it in such like a lighthearted romantic comedy style, I think really helps send that message home. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite sketches that we didn't get a chance to get to, uh, is the dude who, he loves food so much it's literally going to kill him uh where 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 he sits down and he orders the food with the uh the the bone in it the ramen with the bone even though he's not allowed to have it and he literally swallows and they have to uh stick a vacuum down his throat <laughs> to try to like pull it out like it's such a funny like almost monty python ish oh, like yeah. physical gag moment there's a hilarious um, detail in that by the way which is that the much younger mistress keeps coming in and bringing him in and she always lists all of the foods he can't have but in such a way that sort of suggests that he should have them yeah. and then she always goes and she always leaves and goes anyway i'm going to the bank <laughs> and it, ha- yeah. it happens in more than one scene <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's one thing I love, too, is that he actually comes back and he's in the last scene of the film um, ordering at Tampopo's restaurant when it finally opens. Um, And 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 he sits down and is one of the few people who who orders. And she says, now, look, he can only have plain noodles. And I was like, dude, this literally this guy loves ramen so much. He is going to kill himself eating ramen. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, again, you know that because she goes into every restaurant and warns them that this has happened several times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Again, it's just a pure expression of this guy's passion and enjoyment. And like, I think that that is like a strangely beautiful thing. And, And, uh, And just like that kid with the note from his mom and the carrot around his neck that says, please do not feed him anything but natural foods. Who are, who are we to deny him those pleasures if that is what he chooses and if he understands what he's getting into? Give that kid yeah, ice the, cream. The, 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 give him that ice cream, bro. And again, also how it how it fits into that guy's gonna die for food. The, the baby, and then it ends, and then it ends on the baby eating his first meal from his mother's breast. And then it also involves a lot of sex. So this is really like life, sex, and death yeah. through the expression Circle of, of pleasure life. and food mm-hmm. and movies. And uh, I got to say, hey, man, I like food. I like movies. And also, 
uh, I've subconsciously made a pull of ramen after I watched this film later that day. So. <laughs> I, I, I have watched I have watched this movie twice in the last month to prepare for this, and I've seen it many times before. But I I have realized you can never watch this movie hungry. So oh, we, no. so so we have gone out of our way to make <laughs> to make ramen before watching this, <laughs> so that I wouldn't yeah. feel the pull to do it later or during. We were watching That's it beautiful. right before dinner, and and yeah, we we mucked that dinner. <laughs> I will say that. Uh, yeah, I, I gotta say we don't get many, um, um, movies on, on this show that make you feel all nice and warm inside. So I do really appreciate that you, that you brought this one on. Uh, and, and somehow paired it with Texas and, and somehow Massacre. paired it with the most like grisly horror movie ever made. So well done there. Mad respect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to give it a, a four out of five. This was just, I just felt, uh, just warm and cuddly inside afterwards. And I, I, I had a great time. And even with the bizarre sex scenes that I had to watch with my family, still had a wonderful time. So yeah, four out of five for me. Okay. Uh, well, before I get to my rating real quick, I wanted to say one more thing that directly ties this to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is that uh, there, there is a scene in this movie that I've, I've watched it with several different people. And even more than the food sex, the scene that visibly makes some people uncomfortable there is a soft-shelled turtle who, that is killed on screen and prepared for a meal. And I, I've watched some people squirm through that to the point where, like, I started telling people, like, okay, you know, even I don't necessarily tell them about the egg coming up. I just tell them, like, hey, a turtle is killed on camera. So, you know, just if you have sensitivities to that, let me know and I'll let you know when you can look away. I guess that's, you know, it, there's different cultural attitudes and personal attitudes toward food preparation. But again, that ties I mean, into Texas. that ties into Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the the discomfort you feel knowing that this thing you're eating was once alive. And are, are you comfortable knowing that if you eat it, you know, without having seen what came before or, uh, but anyway, uh, moving it's, on. It, it, it's true, man. I'm not a huge fan of turtle murder. Uh, <laughs> I have was, seen uh, cannibal that, Holocaust. So that one, I was, was going to say, that's literally one reason I haven't watched cannibal Holocaust yet yeah. because I know of the footage of real turtles being massacred. <laughs> I will say the cannibal Holocaust one is, is far longer, much more detailed and, uh, uh, just, just, it's a bigger turtle too. So that doesn't help. <laughs> so it, it's like 10 it's times the size. It, it is. And, <laughs> and it's, and, it, and it's doesn't not going help. to become a meal. No, no, yeah, they're just fucking, they're just slaughtering the thing. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's much worse in, in Cannibal Holocaust. I actually completely forgot about the turtle thing. I think I just, uh, wiped it away from my brain there for a minute. But yeah, that was a pretty uncomfortable, uh, moment, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's very brief, I will say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, again, they, you know, they, they do, they do one cut and then like, and just kind of move on, but it's, yeah. it's there. It's yeah. there. But again, just just it, these two movies can make you rethink your relationship to food in any way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so um, but anyway, uh, Tam Popo, I, I brought this on because this is one of my favorite movies. I, as you said, with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre prelude, which is also in my top five, both of these are in my top five. Uh, this for me is the cinematic equivalent of comfort food. If I'm feeling bad, if I'm feeling blue, this is a movie I can put on the background and find some enjoyment in, no matter how many times I've seen it. Uh, it is a movie about craftsmanship by a master craftsman. Uh, well-acted, well-directed, well-written. Uh, just so much attention to detail and so much attention to tone and the interconnectedness of the vignettes and theme. It is just a wonderfully cohesive piece. 
uh, a fabulous comedy, and I I have never shown it to anybody that didn't come away with it with at least feeling somewhat entertained. Uh, I I think it is a perfect movie, and for me, it is a five star film. Nice, hell yeah. All right. Well, I think that that will wrap it up for this week's show. That was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1974, at Tampopo, <laughs> uh, 1985. Thanks so much, uh, Casey, for joining us and bringing these films on with you. Um, I know you said at the top of the show that you don't have anything you want to plug, uh, but maybe people could, if, if they want more of your opinions, they could find you on Twitter, maybe? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, at Manovsky Article. Uh, I talk about things I enjoy, and sometimes people like that. Uh, <laughs> well, do you know what? That was how I found you. That was how I found you for the show. I was like, you know what? I like what this guy's got to say. And and, uh, and I also like to talk a lot about horror, manga, uh, and food. So these are all things that I feel like I've brought at least somewhat <laughs> to this show. So if you like my discussion of these things, then you'll probably like the Twitter account. Hell sure. yeah. Uh, but for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where now that we have finally hit the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we kind of thought... Shit, I guess it's time to do some Toby Hooper. Yes. Uh, so we are going to do a double feature of Toby Hooper's two follow-up films to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive from 1976, his kind of surreal alligator horror film. More food and movies. Yes, some more food going on there. And then we're also going to be talking about The Fun House from 1981, which is his sort of uh, carnival house slasher film. Um, so that's what you can expect, uh, as your bonus episode next week, uh, patreon.com slash Thesoids podcast. Once again, if you guys want that episode, but in two weeks time, we are going to be back with, uh, two special guests, I believe in two weeks, uh, the, uh, sci-fi boys over at Podside picnic are going to be bringing on, uh, the films aliens, another, uh, massive one that we haven't done yet by James Cameron, the sequel to Ridley Scott's alien, as well as the uh, French film Delicatessen, More Food. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, So uh, that's what you guys can expect there. I think it's actually funny that they're bringing on Delicatessen because it's by Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who uh, I think he's the guy who did Alien Resurrection, which is like the really infamous alien movie that people don't don't like very much. Uh, Is is that the one where they imply Uh, that... uh, um, What's her... I can't even remember her character's name for some reason. Ripley? Ripley. Uh, is that the one where they imply that Ripley has sex with the aliens? I, I can't remember, dude. I, don't I haven't recall. seen that one. I haven't seen that one in a long time. I, all I remember about that one is I think it has something to do with, uh, there's like a clone version of her or something, or I can't, yeah. something to do with they clone her. Yeah, there's some That's weird shit that goes on. I, I, I I also remember that it has Winona Ryder, Brad Dourif, and Ron Perlman in it in like supporting roles. <laughs> Hell Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! Yeah, there, so say, there there is a direct line from Amelie to Alien Resurrection. <laughs> I amazing. think that's great. <laughs> uh, so either way, that is what we are going to be talking about uh, in two weeks' time for all the free listeners there. Uh, but yeah, anyway, I think that'll wrap it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.